Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Summer loving had me a blast. Summer loving, it happened so fast, because it's only the first of May. That just <laughs> kept going. You're f- That was so long. Um, that's what I do. I make the joke go on just a little too long. Well, I wanted to get to the point that, like, it's not actually summer. It's, like, the beginning of May, and it was, like, 86 degrees today. Yeah. And it's so nice out. But we came inside just for you, listeners. Just for you. You're welcome. You're very welcome. We were at the lake today. Oh, it was so nice and... Uh, then I did some work outside. I did the research for this episode, like sitting on the porch. It was oh, nice. really lovely. Yeah. Did all of that while I was folding laundry. Folding laundry and editing exercise videos. Doing some yes. audio editing. <laughs> yep. You know, we got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Sunday fun day. Got to make a buck somehow. Got Yep. You know, I got to say, I like doing this. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I like it, doing this it, podcast. It'd be a shame if you didn't. Yeah. I this mean, is a whole lot of work to put into not really making a buck <laughs> if you didn't like it. Well, we had an exciting week because we had our single largest download day ever by like 4,000%. Our single largest download day, which was also our single largest download month. Yeah. Was it really? Was it? To- it was bigger than the like a whole month? Yeah. Yeah. So... We've we've been averaging almost 500 downloads a month, a month the last very, couple of months, is which, is, which is lovely for fine our little niche podcast. And, and uh, the day that our last episode released, and this is I I am absolutely I give full, certain full like credit because to Florida because of Florida, Florida Men on Man. Florida Man and and their their marketing team and their advertising like what whatever it was they did. We had 490 downloads in one day. On Tuesday, like on um, our release day. We were like, what the which heck? Is, which is just slightly more than we average in most months. Yeah. Um, and then they did another one like three days later and it was almost 200. Yeah. And it was just like we were just like literally I signed on. So I try not to like follow the numbers because they say not to, but we check in because we're new and we're trying to like see what's working, what's not. And uh, so right before we were going to bed on Tuesday night, I uh, clicked on Podbean or I clicked on, um, yeah, Podbean. That's that's who hosts us. Hi, Podbean. Um, and I thought it was broken. <laughs> I turned to Ken and I was like, oh. Yeah, that, that random <laughs> that little was the blip noise. was very strange. It was crazy. But yeah, so I like doing this and that was a really fun day for us. So thank you, Wayne and the team at. Uh, FM, uh, how do, FMO F- FM. FM. Yeah. Uh, you guys kick ass and, uh, we've yeah, actually so had a lot of traction is, on true crimes and a lie too. Apparently so. that is the way to grow your listenership <laughs> is to let podcasts with bigger listenerships advertise for you. Like, come on. Like, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's it. So now we're just going to be leeching on to, um, more successful people. Yep. I mean, that is the American way. Yeah. <laughs> Just, just glob on to someone who's been more successful than you and well, let them. Fuck! I knew I'd been doing it wrong the whole time. Let them drag your star higher. I'm like literally, 
like not just podcasting that is life and i'm not good at it so yeah. i guess we're gonna try we're gonna try for you listeners <laughs> we're gonna do it we're gonna do it and you know what we do we read stories we do we do yeah. Uh, you should check us out on our Instagram and our Facebook and share it with five friends because that's the pyramid scheme yeah. we have. Yeah. And uh, so, so for our new listeners, because every episode is somebody's first episode, and we got a lot of new listeners last week. Um, the 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 way we really grow our listener base is that if you listen to an episode, it is then your job to tell five friends to listen to an episode. Yes. That's it. That's all. That's, that's all. That's all we it's ask. That easy. You know, if you want to buy us coffee or be a patron, that's even cooler. That's, like, that's great. And but like, please we do, love that. Please do subscribe. Follow if you us on Podchaser. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Like, do all the things that also help us. But really, just tell five friends that yeah. you think will like what we do, and that's how we do a what we do. As we do. A wop babaloo bop. A wop bamboo. Where's the second Grease reference in like? 10 minutes. Well, yeah, I know. That was an intentional <laughs> oh, you, callback. You did that intentionally? That was that was quick, baby. <laughs> that wasn't an accidental grease reference. That was me making fun of your grease reference. Speaking of grease, let's move on to <laughs> Now I'm really curious what story you selected. This has nothing to do with grease. Oh. Speaking of non sequiturs. Yeah, so you want to know what's going on? So I got to pick the story this week because uh-huh. uh, it is my turn to surprise Ken. And we have another new author, which I'm very excited about. Her name, it's a lady, it's a powerful ass woman. And her name is Amelia Ann Blandford Edwards, also known as Amelia Edwards. <laughs> Great. Um, um, I got all- So I imagine her story is going to be lengthy because her name is lengthy. <laughs> Well, she was she's British and born in the 1800s. They all had long names. So, yeah. I mean, that's damn right short for the 1800s. Yeah. Well, and if she's English in the 1800s, she's also probably getting paid by the word. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> um, so I uh, got all this information from Wikipedia, Historic England, UPenn Digital Library, Frosty Ramblings, WordPress.com, and the University of College London blogs. Frosty Ramblings? That's what it's called. Awesome. And they had a great article on it. Love it's it. like a blog about yeah, no, literature. <laughs> I was just confirming His Frosty. name is David Frost, the guy that like writes it. So, Frosty Ramblings. Cool. Uh, so, we have Miss Amelia B. Edwards. She was born in London on June 7th, 1831, to an Irish mother and a father who had been an officer in the British Army um, and then was a banker after that. So she was educated at home by her mother um, and showed promise as a writer very early on um, because at the time, you know, she's a girl. The fact she got an education at all is amazing. Uh, she published her first poem at the age of seven. Wow. And she published her first short story at the age of 12. God, real late bloomer. Oh, it's yeah. a shame. It's she rough. couldn't, like, get, get to it, work get a, her little, shit together. a little sooner. Yeah. Um, she also, now let's talk about being an overachiever. She also became an artist- and illustrated most of her own writings. That's cool. She was talented enough that at age 12, she caught the eye of a professional artist, George Kershank, which I've heard of. I'm not great at art, but I've heard the name, so that's great. Who uh, went so far to uh, offer to teach her. Like, he saw such promise in her. But this talent was not supported by her parents because they saw art as a lesser profession and the artist's way of life scandalous. Well, yeah. Duh. 
So instead, she's a writer. I guess that's okay. Because that's not art at all. Well, writers can be seen as academics, yeah. whereas artists, artists are fucking sit hippies. Sit in parks and paint. Yeah. Um, and thirdly, on top of that, she took up composing and performing opera and music for years until she suffered a bout with typhus in 1849. And this made it, this caused damage to her vocal cords. And huh. so she lost interest in music and just kind of like put that to the wayside. But she continued to compose and stuff on the side. Oh, that's cool. So I wonder she, if she was ever, a, like, I wonder if she ever wrote an opera version of any of her stories. I don't know, but I did find there was a fact that she plays a character in a non-musical version of Aida. Um, oh. She is a character. You're going to find out why. Okay. Um, so... Uh, she was a woman of many talents, clearly. Yeah. Um, and she began focusing solely on writing in the 1850s. Um, her first full-length novel was called My Brother's Wife that came out in 1855. And her early novels were all well-received, well but it was her novel Barbara's History that came out in 1864 um, that really established her as, like, solid writer. Um, the topic of this novel was bigamy and polygamy. Um, huh. Yes. Which we're going to find out. Okay, so in... So now going back a little bit. In January of 1851, she became engaged to Mr. Bacon, not <laughs> Kevin. I, well, but we don't know the first name. There's like no no reference that knows who what his first name was. So, so maybe, it could be Kevin. It, it could be Francis. It could be Kevin, but I, I'm hoping it's Kevin Bacon. <laughs> I, I He's probably a vampire like yeah. Paul Rudd and all those other and people. And Keanu Reeves. And yeah. Keanu Reeves. Um, so she was engaged to Mr. Bacon just to appease her parents who were both ill and they were worried about their unwed spinster daughter. Sure. She was what, 14 or something? <laughs> well, it was that time. Uh, uh, yeah. No, she was 20. <laughs> she was 20, and oh no. Um, there were no signs that this was any kind of loving relationship, and literally after her second parent died that year, they both passed away that year, she <laughs> broke off the engagement. <laughs> She then formed an emotional attachment with only exclusively women after that. Uh, she is considered to be a LGBTQ British icon. So here's a little bit about that. Her friend and author and critic, John Addington Sidmans, uh, in a conversation with sexologist Havelock Ellis, those are the most British names ever, that Amelia Edwards, quote, made no secret to, to me about her lesbian tendencies and had formed a menage with an English lady and her clergyman husband. Oh. Miss Edwards told me that one day the husband married her and his wife at the altar of his church, having full knowledge of the state of affairs. So they were together for a while, and in the, like, census, all three of them lived in the same house. Huh. But then Miss... So this was uh, Mr. and Mrs. Byrne, um, and Mr. Byrne got another assignment and they had to move and Edwards decided to stay because she had like ties there right. and said this was like devastating to her. So she was in like a bisexual, like menage a trois relationship. A, a so, polyamorous, polyamorous relationship. Which she had written, which she wrote about, which became her famous, her most famous book. And then after that happened, um, from the 1960s on, 
she lived with a woman named Ellen Drew Brashire, um, who was a widow, 27 years her senior. So she's kind of like um, um, uh, Sarah Paulson. She likes the older ladies. <laughs> um, and they became live-in companions um, until both of them passed away. Huh. Now, she was also known to have other close relationships with women. So clearly she wasn't a monogamist. Monogamist? Monogamist. Monogamist. Yeah. Monogamist. Woo! Uh, Words are hard. She felt tied down by monogamy. Yeah. So there were, but her, but Ellen was her like, that was her partner. Um, So though she was a very successful writer and artist and all these other things, what she's actually known for most today is her travel writings and her contribution to Egyptology. Oh. So here's another fun fact. Once she turned like 30 and her parents were gone and she was clearly like very comfortable in her own skin, she was like, I'm going to travel as a woman alone in the 1800s. So just put that in your mind. So Amelia embarked on a series of uh, expeditions. Um, So usually male chaperones were like necessary in this situation. And she's like, oh, no, I'm good. I'm great. So she brought along one of her other friends, lady companions, Lucy Renshaw, who was always her travel companion. Um, do you know that name? Well, I think, I mean, I think it's a, it sounds like a combination of like, Lucy is the name of a character in Dracula and yeah. like, it's just, it's, it sounds like a combination of several literary names. Yeah. Like L- Lucy Renshaw, I want her to be a vampire in an Oscar Wilde play. And well, that would make sense. So, <laughs> um, but so she traveled and she went on three expeditions that she wrote about that are still books today that are com- like, that are people know about. So her first one was chronicled um, as sights and stories, a holiday tour through nor- Northern Belgium. <laughs> That was in 1862. And then um, she did a really challenging, crazy-ass journey that I wanted to talk a lot more about, but we don't have time, um, where she and Lucy hiked through the Dolomites, like, alone, with just a couple guides that they'd hired, like, through the, like, crappy passages that are really dangerous. But they did it on their own, and she um, wrote it in a book um, called Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys that came out in 1873. Huh. Her third documented journey is what changed her life. Uh, in the winter of 1873 to 1874, she traveled to Egypt, sailed up the Nile to Abu Simbel. Simbel? Abu Simbel, yeah. Cool. Um, there she spent six weeks excavating the Temple of Ramesses II. So she uh, she wrote about this and uh, published a book called A Thousand Miles Up the Nile in 1877, which she also self-illustrated. Uh, her travels to Egypt made her become aware of the increasing threat to ancient monuments from tourism and modern development. And she set out to, like, bring public awareness to this. Um And in 1882, she co-founded the Egypt Exploration Fund with Reginald Stuart Poole, who was the curator of coins and medals at the British Museum. So they went in and basically set up this, like, preservation fund for Egypt, like Egypt, Egyptian monuments, Egyptian monuments. Now, I've been to the British Museum into the Egypt, like, section. Right. 
she's part of that. She was a curator of it. She became like this huge part of it. So depending on who you ask, she is one of the um, greatest preservers of historical antiquity of all time or one of the greatest thieves of all time. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Though most of what she did was send money to Egypt so they could preserve what's what was there. there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so she became uh, an honorary secretary of the fund to like explore and preserve Egyptian um, culture, um, history. And uh, she also contributed to the ninth edition of Encyclopedia Britannica and the Standard Dictionary in Egyptology. So she like wrote passages, wrote passages about for, it, for, Encyclopedia for the Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, she also did a lecture around the United States in 1889 to 1890 until her health began to deteriorate, deteriorate after she broke her arm on the tour. Um, she kept touring and finished the tour and then came home, but um, her partner Ellen, her life partner, was not doing well and she died in January of 1892. And Edwards died four months later in April, um, on April 15th. They are buried side by side in St. Mary's Church in Bristol. Their graves are now listed sites with historic England, recognizing them as important figures in the country's LGBTQ history. Um, and uh, yeah, they're like registered. It's a registered historical site. So there's a wow. lot more about her. She had a fascinating life. Anyway, today you will be reading The Phantom Coach um, that was first published in 1864 in All the Year Round magazine. All right. This is uh, said to be her most famous short story. The Phantom Coach. The Phantom Coach. All right. Let's start this fire. Let's do it. The Phantom Coach. By Amelia Edwards. The circumstances I am about to relate to you have truth to recommend them. They happened to myself, and my recollection of them is as vivid as if they had taken place only yesterday. Twenty-one years, however, have gone by since that night. It feels like COVID. <laughs> Feels like it started it's yesterday. Been 21 <laughs> years, but I remember seeing the outside world as though <laughs> it, it were yesterday. yesterday. <laughs> During those 21 years, I have told the story to but one other person. I tell it now with a reluctance which I find it difficult to overcome. All I entreat, meanwhile, is that you will abstain from forcing your own conclusions upon me. Oh, we're going to force lots of conclusions upon you. <laughs> I want nothing explained away. I desire no arguments. My mind on this subject is quite made up, and having the testimony of mine own senses to rely upon, I prefer to abide by it. Well, this person clearly did not live during social media times. You know, you'd post something like this and be like, I don't want any arguments. And people are like, you're fat. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously, yeah. though. <laughs> well, it was just 21 years ago and within a day or two of the end of the grouse season, 
I had been out all day with my gun and had had no sport to speak of. The wind was due east, the month December, the place a bleak, wide moor on the far north of England. So I'm excited to find out if this is a man or a woman, because remember that Miss Mary Pask? Mm -hmm. We assumed it was a woman, but it was a male. Now, one of the fun facts I'd cut out is that she was also an avid shooter, like Hunter. Um, so, uh, now we'll just wait until we have a pronoun. Well, so it's entirely possible that she is just writing herself, herself. especially if she was most well known for, uh, travelogues yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. Like, it's entirely possible that, that her fiction actually was happened written, to her. <laughs> or that her fiction was written in the style of, of no, this happened to, to me. me. All right, let's find out. Yay! But I'm not making any assumptions. Oh, I've already <laughs> made all of the assumptions. Well, yeah. But I'm a presumptuous white man. <laughs> and I have, I'm going to back up a little bit because that's a, a, like, there's a period, but the entire sentence is the second half of a dependent clause. So right. I'm going to jump back a little bit. Ooh, fancy, fancy words. Um, the wind was due east, the month December, the place a bleak wide moor in the far north of England, and I had lost my way. That sucks. It was not a pleasant place in which to lose one's way, with the first feathery flakes of coming snowstorm just fluttering down upon the heather. Upon me! <laughs> it's snowing on me! Yeah. That's weird, because it's like 85 degrees us. Well, you know what that means. What? Dandruff. Ew. Oh, no. <laughs> My scalp does get dry in the winter. <laughs> And the leaden evening closing in all around. I shaded my eyes with my hand and staled anxiously into the gathering darkness where the purple moorland melted into a range of low hills some ten or twelve miles distant. Not the faintest smoke wreath, not the tiniest cultivated patch or fence or sheep track met my eyes in any direction. There was nothing for it but to walk on and take my chance of finding what shelter I could by the way. So I shouldered my gun again and pushed warily forward, for I had been on foot since an hour after daybreak and had eaten nothing since breakfast. This is naked and afraid and alone. (laughs) But they gave him a gun. That's nice. Yeah. So, you know, naked and afraid, 18th century or 19th century edition. (laughs) Yeah. The upshot is we've got a gun. The downshot is there is apparently no support camera crew. Uh, so, so they're just completely alone. Yeah. So the, the, you, you, we're not because well, there this, was no cameras. We're not. We're not doing this for TV. We're just naked and afraid and alone. Except yeah, probably not in, naked. In the middle of that the 1800s, in the middle of the 1800s, there were no camera crews because television didn't exist, nor no. did movies. Although photography a camera, did. A camera camera often required a whole crew just to move. Well, exactly. There is no <laughs> camera crew. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the snow began to come down with ominous steadiness and the wind fell. After this, the cold became more intense and the night came rapidly up. 
As for me, my prospects darkened with the darkening sky, and my heart grew heavy as I thought how my young wife was already watching for me through the window of our little inn parlor, and thought of all the suffering in store for her throughout this weary night. We had been married four months, and having spent our autumn in the highlands, We're now lodging in a remote little village situated just on the verge of the great English moorlands. We were very much in love and, of course, very happy. This morning, when we parted, she had implored me to return before dusk, and I had promised her that I would. Down fucked up four months in, wow. What would I not have given to have kept my word? (laughs) Even now, weary as I was, I felt that with a supper, an hour's rest, and a guide, I might still get back to her before midnight, if only guide and shelter could be found. And all this time the snow fell and the night thickened. I stopped and shouted every now and then, but my shouts seemed only to make the silence deeper. Then a vague sense of uneasiness came upon me, and I began to remember stories of travelers who had walked on and on in the falling snow until, wearied out, they were fain to lie down and sleep their lives away. That's terrifying. Would it be possible, I asked myself, to keep on thus through all the long dark night? Would there not come a time when my limbs... It's a Eugene O'Neill play. (laughs) (laughs) Would there not come a time when my limbs must fail and my resolution give way, when I too must sleep the sleep of death? Death. I shuddered. How hard to die just now when life lay all so bright before me. How hard for my darling, whose whole loving heart, but that thought was not to be born. (laughs) To banish it, I shouted again louder and longer and then listened eagerly. Was my shout answered? Or did I only fancy that I heard a far off cry? No, that's the coyotes that's going to come eat you. Maybe the coyote heard this this bro yelling in the field and was like, hey, but with a British accent. So, hello. Or maybe he's talking to his own echo. Ooh, that's creepy. Hello. Hello. Who are you? Who are you? I asked first. I asked second. It's a magic echo, apparently. It is. It's a Disney echo. I hallowed again, and again the echo followed. Then a wavering speck of light came suddenly out of the dark, shifting, disappearing, growing momentarily nearer and brighter. Running towards it at full speed, I found myself to my great joy face to face with an old man and a lantern. Thank God, was the exclamation that burst involuntarily (laughs) from my lips. Blinking and frowning, he lifted his lantern and peered into my face. I can totally see this old British man like, uh, yeah, indeed. But his response is better. Oh, oh, well, yes, I'm not a writer. (laughs) Thank God, was the exclamation that burst involuntarily from my lips. 
Blinking and frowning, he lifted his lantern and peered into my face. What for? He growled sulkily. <laughs> the fuck you doing out here? Uh, well, for you? <laughs> I began to fear I should be lost in the snow. Uh, then, folks do get cast away hereabouts for time to time, and what's to hinder you from being cast away likewise, if the Lord's so minded? <laughs> If the Lord is so minded that you and I shall be lost together, friend, we must submit, I replied. But I don't mean to be lost without you. <laughs> How far am I now from Dwalding? A good twenty mile, more or less. Shit. And the nearest village? The nearest village is Wyke, and that's twelve mile to the other side. Where do you live, then? <laughs> In this field. Come to my hovel. Out yonder, said he with a vague jerk of the lantern. You're going home, I presume? Maybe I am. <laughs> then I'm going with you. The old man shook his head and rubbed his nose reflectively with the handle of the lantern. It ain't no use, growled he. He won't let you in, not he. Well, who's, who's he? We'll see about that, I replied briskly. <laughs> Who is he? <laughs> the master. Uh-oh. Who is the master? I feel like we have another story where they're going to come upon the Rocky Horror House. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a common theme. I mean, This is like Riff Raff like, out for a walk, and he's like, ah, fuck. There's a reason that... That is the Rocky Horror yes. shit. Uh, uh, like set up. Yeah. yeah. Who is the master? That's not to you, was the unceremonious reply. Well, well, you lead the way and I'll engage that the master shall give me shelter and a supper tonight. <laughs> eh, you can try him, muttered my <laughs> reluctant guide. I love this man. I love him so much. And still shaking his head, he hobbled, gnome-like, away through the falling snow. A large mass loomed up presently out of the darkness, and a huge dog rushed out, barking furiously. Puppy! So it, it was a dog. Yeah. Is this the house? I asked. I is a house down by... Uh, he's he's written in in, uh, in dialect of yes, sorts. Yes, yeah. clearly. I love to give you those stories yeah. where you have to read in dialect. Yeah. I it's a house down by, and he fumbled in his pocket for the key. I drew up close behind him, prepared to lose no chance of entrance, and saw in the little circle of light shed by the lantern that the door was heavily studded with iron nails, like the door of a prison. Oh, oh. In another minute, he had turned the key, and I had pushed past him into the house. This guy's like, don't you dare close that door, bitch. That's an ominous thing to notice. Yeah, that's real mm, creepy. This house looks like a prison. That's great. <laughs> Once inside, I looked around with curiosity and found myself in a great raftered hall, which served, apparently, a variety of uses. One end was piled to the roof with corn, like a barn. 
The other was stored with flour sacks, <laughs> agriculture implements, casks, and all kinds of miscellaneous lumber. While from the beans overhung rows of hams, flitches, <laughs> and bunches of dried herbs for winter use. So this he's in a barn. A weird ass living room. It's a weird thing to like come in and like you'd know if you were entering a barn. <laughs> nope, they just have all the barn stuff in their entrance hallway. It's a barn prison. Barn prison. Yeah. So it's, it's a like prison. It's like the new season of Handmaid's Tale. It's a prarn. It's a prarn. A prarn. A prison barn. A prarn. <laughs> it's a prawn. It's a or giant a, shrimp. Or a it's my Pepe brain. the King Prawn. <laughs> oh, Pepe the Prawn. I, I can't talk. I'm I'm done. I'm never going to speak again. <laughs> you, heard it here, you heard it here first, folks. And that lasted for almost a full two count. <laughs> All right. I'm going to see how long I can not talk. In the center of the floor stood some huge object, gauntly dressed in a dingy wrapping cloth and reaching halfway to the rafters. Lifting the corner of the cloth, I saw, to my surprise, a telescope of very considerable size mounted on a rude, movable platform with four small <laughs> wheels. He lifted a cloth and saw an abnormally large uh, pole to look through. Okay. (laughs) I tried. Yeah, I knew knew that wouldn't last. It was a valiant effort. I can't help it. The tube was made of painted wood bound (laughs) round with bands of metal rudely fashioned. (laughs) So it's a giant dildo. The speculum, (laughs) so far as I could estimate its size in the dim light... Measured at least 15 inches in diameter. Ouch. Oh, my God. Oh, no. There's a giant living in this house, and they just had their OBGYN appointment. While I was yet examining the instrument and asking myself whether it was not the work of some self-taught optician, <laughs> a bell rang sharply. The master. That's for you, said my guide, with a malicious grin. Yonder's his room. He pointed to a low black door on the opposite side of the hall. I crossed over, rapped somewhat loudly, and went in. Without you rapped waiting. loudly? Yeah. Wicka wicka, hey, I'm in your house and I need to stay because it's real cold out. That wasn't actually bad. All right, all right, a little bit of slant rhyme. I expected something about a mouse. (laughs) That would have been too obvious. (laughs) I crossed over, rapped somewhat loudly, and went in without waiting for an invitation. A huge, white-haired old man rose from the table covered with books and papers and confronted me sternly. Who are you? said he. How came you here? What do you want? Uh, James Murray, barrister at law... On foot, across the moor, meet, drink, and sleep. All right, so we now know it is a presumably a man who is a lawyer. Yep. Okay, so now there's a lawyer in this guy's house. He's going to be like, get the fuck out of my house. <laughs> he bent his bushy brows into a portentous frown. <laughs> Mine's not a house of entertainment, he said haughtily. Jacob, how dare you admit the stranger? Uh- I didn't admit him. 
grumbled the old man. He followed me over the moor and shouldered his way in before me. I'm no match for six foot two. <laughs> and pray you, sir, by what right have you forced an entrance into my house? The same by which I should have clung to your boat if I were drowning. The right of self-preservation. Self-preservation? There's an inch of snow on the ground already, I replied briefly, and it would be deep enough to cover my body before daybreak. I love that this guy is wandering alone in a snowstorm at dusk, and these people are like, why the fuck are you coming into my house? And they're like, the town, the closest town's 12 miles away. You have to be there because that's the only way you're going to survive. But also, these people suck, and I don't want to be in their house. This is a no-win situation. I mean, I guess he's winning because he's inside and he's, he's not inside. dying. Unless those hams hanging from the, the ceiling are... Aren't uh, ham. Uh-oh. I'm glad I caught you at home. Can we use your phone? <laughs> Let's do the time warp again. There's an inch of snow on the ground already, I replied briefly, and it would be deep enough to cover my body before daybreak. He strode to the window, pulled aside a heavy black curtain, and looked out. It is true, said he. You can stay if you choose till morning. Jacob, serve the supper! With this, he waved me to a seat, resumed his own, and became at once absorbed in the studies from which I had disturbed him. Well, he does not seem nearly as uh, interested in his surprise visitors as Frankenfurter does. Yeah. So there's that. Unless he's like reverse psychologizing this guy. <laughs> it's like, I have no interest in you until you fall asleep. <laughs> I placed my gun in the corner. Oh, that's right. He's carrying a fucking gun. <laughs> that is not super inviting. I placed my gun in the corner, drew a chair to the hearth, and examined my quarters at leisure. Smaller and less incongruous in its arrangement than the hall, this room contained nevertheless much to awaken my curiosity. The floor was carpetless. The whitewashed walls were in parts scrawled over with strange diagrams and in others covered with shelves crowded with philosophical instruments, the uses of many of which were unknown to me. On one side of the fireplace stood a bookcase filled with dingy folios. On the other, a small organ fantastically decorated with painted carvings of medieval saints and devils. Through the half-open door of the cupboard at the further end of the room, I saw a long array of geological specimens, surgical preparations, crucibles, retorts, and jars of chemicals, while on the mantel shelf beside me, amid a number of small objects, stood a model of the solar system, a small galvanic battery, and a microscope. Every chair had its burden. Every corner was heaped high with books. The very floor was littered over with maps, casts, papers, tracings, and learned lumber of all conceivable kinds. Yeah, this is a lab. This is yep. a laboratory. 
it's very Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, yeah. uh, very uh, Frankenstein's, Dr. Frankenstein, like. So. Like, it's a very learned man. And this is this is the laboratory. Next door is the barn. The, the if you meat go, shed. If you go across the way, you'll find the conservatory and the ballroom. Oh, and oh. then somewhere along the line, you're gonna find Mr. Body with a lead pipe next to his head. Well, maybe that's what the ma- that's the master. <laughs> I stared about me with an amazement increased by every fresh object. For the record, that is now two Tim Curry movies. Yes, yes. Uh, oh, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> love Tim Curry. I stared about me with an amazement increased by every fresh object upon which my eyes chanced to rest. So strange a room I had never seen, yet seemed it stranger still to find such a room in a lone farmhouse amid those wild and solitary moors. Over and over again, I looked from my host to his surroundings and from his surroundings back to my host, asking myself who and what he could be. His head was singularly fine, but it was more the head of a poet than a philosopher. Broad at the temples, prominent over the eye, and clothed with a rough profusion of perfectly white hair, it had all the ideality and much of the ruggedness that characterizes the head of Louis von Beethoven. (laughs) Okay. So this is someone who's into, um, what's that science? Classical Crani- music? Craniology. Oh, craniology. That craniology, the, crani- yeah. yeah. I don't, I, Fr- I'm Phrenology, is that the? I think so. Yeah. Those people that'll have those heads that you could like touch on and it's bullshit. <laughs> that was like a actual study like back then though, like that people believed in. It's, it's oh, yeah. bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like the shape of your face. You must be a criminal. Lock them up. Yeah. <laughs> That sounds well, like that sounds like some BMI shit. That sounds like a BMI like they're trying to prove like a certain kind of person like which would probably well, be a genetic thing. 100% that's what it was yes. because all of the traits that tended to be more common in Africa and Asia and like the Indian subcontinent in the Middle East were traits that they that these scientists happened to discover coincided with violent tendencies and lower IQ and difficult difficulty comprehending language and, and all of those white things. white people yeah. suck. Um, where was I? Fuck those people. Something about reading the brain. There were the same deep lines about the mouth and the same stern furrows in the brow. There was the same concentration of expression. While I was yet observing him, the door opened and Jacob brought in the supper. His master then closed his book, rose, and with more courtesy of manner than he had yet shown, invited me to the table. Well, that was nice. A dish of ham and eggs, a loaf of brown bread, and a bottle of admirable sherry were placed before me. Do you like green eggs and ham? I do, I do, Sam I am. (laughs) I will eat green eggs and ham as long as they come with sherry. For then, 
eating green eggs and ham would make me very merry. Merry. Yay. <laughs> I will eat them in this house. I will take them from your mouse. Or I will put them in my mouth. That's slant rhyme. Yeah. I'm all about the slant rhyme. Apparently. <laughs> A dish of ham and eggs, a loaf of brown bread, and a bottle of admirable sherry were placed before me. I have but the homeliest farmhouse fare to offer you, sir, said my entertainer. Your appetite, I trust, will make up for the deficiencies of our larder. I had already fallen upon the viands and now protested with the enthusiasm of a starving sportsman that I had never eaten anything so delicious. <laughs> he bowed stiffly and sat down to his own supper, which consisted primitively of a jug of milk and a basin of porridge. We ate in silence, and when he had done, Jacob removed the tray I then drew my chair back to the fireside. My host, somewhat to my surprise, did the same, and turning abruptly towards me, said, Sir, I have lived here in strict retirement for three and twenty years. During that time, I have not seen as many strange faces, and I have not read a single newspaper. You are the first stranger who has crossed my threshold for more than four years. Will you favor me with a few words of information respecting that outer world from which I have parted company so long? Why is he hiding in the fucking, like, middle of nowhere? He's a vampire. Could be. <laughs> Or I, like, well, no, because he'd have to eat people. Well, I do notice that he didn't eat the same food no, that he, he did served not. his guests. No, it was some weird concoction of soup of something. He ate he ate porridge and drank milk. <laughs> so that's like a fucking five-year-old's like meal. Like, maybe he's a five-year-old. Maybe this is a Benjamin Button situation. <laughs> and he like retired to the country as not to freak people out. Yeah. Okay, okay. Will you favor me with a few words of information respecting that outer world from which I have parted company so long? Pray interrogate me, I replied. I am heartily at your service. <laughs> he bent his head in acknowledgment, leaned forward with his elbows resting on his knees and his chin supported in the palms of his hands, stared fixedly into the fire and proceeded to question me. His inquiries related chiefly to scientific matters, with the later progress of which, as applied to the practical purposes of life, he was almost wholly unacquainted. No student of science myself, I replied as well as my slight information permitted, but the task was far from easy, and I was much relieved when, passing from interrogation to discussion, he began pouring forth his own conclusions upon the facts which I had been attempting to place before him. <laughs> he talked, and I listened, spellbound. He talked till I believe he almost forgot my presence and only thought aloud. I had never heard anything like it then. I have never heard anything like it since. 
Familiar with all systems of all philosophies, subtle in analysis, bold in generalization, he poured forth his thoughts in an uninterrupted stream and still leaning forward in the same moody attitude with his eyes fixed upon the fire, wandered from topic to topic, from speculation to speculation, like an inspired dreamer. From practical science to mental philosophy, from electricity in the wire to electricity in the nerve, from Watts to Mesmer, from Mesmer to Reichenbach, from Reichenbach to Swedenborg, Spinoza, Condillac, Descartes, Berkeley, Aristotle, Plato, and the Magi and Mystics of the East. I feel like this guy would get along really well with your family. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's probably true. Yeah. Yeah, just like they can just they can talk about so many amazing like things that I'm just like I just kind of listen. Yeah. It's like it's like your own college lecture right. Well, there. that was yeah. that was me growing up. Yeah. Um, it was I think this is part of why I'm not good at socializing at parties because family get togethers over the holidays were when I would be around the largest groups. Yeah. And my family was forever extolling the virtues of this king or queen of whatever country from 600 years ago and, like, doing these in-depth historical or philosophical conversations about— And you're just like, you just sit there and listen. You're like, holy crap, really? Um, So I got got really used to, in large groups of people, just listening because I I didn't have anything to contribute to those conversations. So I was just, yeah, okay, cool. Okay, I have to go back. Okay. From Watts to Mesmer, from Mesmer to Reichenbach, from Reichenbach to Swedenborg, Spinoza, Condillac, Descartes, Berkeley, Aristotle, Plato, and the Magi and Mystics of the East were transitions which, however bewildering in their variety and scope, seemed easy and harmonious upon his lips as sequences in music. Damn. By and by, I forget now by what link of conjecture or illustration, he passed on to that field which lies beyond the boundary line of even conjectural philosophy and reaches no man knows whither. He spoke of the soul and its aspirations, of the spirit and its powers, of second sight, of prophecy, of those phenomena which under the names of ghosts specters and supernatural appearances have been denied by the skeptics and attested by the credulous of all ages so this man believes in ghosts because he's like he talking about what ghosts really are or or at least like at least he has taken time to consider to consider the science behind like the yeah they're always a rich old man in a sheet that's what scooby-doo has scooby-doo well that's maybe it's this guy The world, he said, grows hourly more and more skeptical of all that lies beyond its own narrow radius. And our men of science foster the fatal tendency. They condemn as fable all that resists experiment. They reject as false all that cannot be brought to the test of the laboratory or the dissecting room. Against what superstition have they waged so long and obstinate a war as against the belief in apparitions? And yet, 
What superstition has maintained its hold upon the minds of men so long and so firmly? Show me any fact in physics, in history, in archaeology which is supported by testimony so wide and so various, attested by all races of men in all ages, in all climates, by the soberest sages of antiquity, by the rudest savage of today, by the Christian, the pagan, the pantheist, the materialist, this phenomenon is treated as a nursery tale by the philosophers of our century. Circumstantial evidence weighs with them as a feather in the balance. The comparison of causes with effects, however valuable in physical science, is put aside as worthless and unreliable. The evidence of competent witnesses, however conclusive in court of justice, counts for nothing. He who pauses before he pronounces is condemned as a trifler. He who believes is a dreamer or a fool. Something tells me this man believes in ghosts. (laughs) Well, he spoke with bitterness and, having said this, relapsed for some minutes into silence. So, bitterness, yeah, apparently... Maybe that's why he out there, because he had some uh, experiences with ghosts and people labeled him a loon. Or he is a ghost and or, he's bitter because no one believes in him. He just wants to make friends, he's like, but no I'm, one ever comes My out. name's Casper, by the way. What's yours? <laughs> he spoke with bitterness and having said thus, relapsed for some minutes into silence. Presently, he raised his head from his hands and added with an altered voice and manner, I, sir, paused, investigated, believed, and was not ashamed to state my convictions to the world. I, too, was branded as a visionary, held up to ridicule by my contemporaries, and hooted from that field of science in which I have labored with honor during all the best years of my life. These things happened just three and twenty years ago. Yep, so it's exactly what happened. Since then, I have lived as you see me living now, and the world has forgotten me as I have forgotten the world. You have my history. It is a very sad one, I murmured, scarcely knowing what to answer. It is a very common one, he replied. I have only suffered for the truth, as many a better and wiser man has suffered before me. He rose, as if desirous of ending the conversation, and went (laughs) over to the window. He's like, okay, we're done. I gave you my life story, now get the fuck out of my office. That's that's how I end conversations. No, it's not. That's how I wish I could end conversations. (laughs) Just, like, get up and Irish exit them. Just fucking leave. Just stand up and stand and, like, stare at the corner. He rose, as if desirous of ending the conversation, and went over to the window. It has ceased snowing, he observed, as he dropped the curtain and came back to the fireside. Ceased, I exclaimed, starting eagerly to my feet. 
Oh, if it were only possible, but no, it is hopeless. Even if I could find my way across the moor, I could not walk twenty miles tonight. Walk twenty miles tonight, repeated my host. What are you thinking of? Of my wife, I replied impatiently. Of my young wife, who does not know that I have lost my way and who is at this moment breaking her heart with suspense and terror. Nah, she getting drunk in the pub and like <laughs> singing songs with the with all the people. She's like, all right, woohoo! Night oh, off. Finally, a night to myself. I get to choose what's on Netflix. I'm gonna fuck yes. Bring me another pint. <laughs> Where is she? At Dwalding, twenty miles away. At Dwalding, he echoed thoughtfully. Yes, the distance, it is true, is twenty miles. But are you so very anxious to save the next six or eight hours? So very, very anxious that I would give ten guineas at this moment for a guide and a horse. Ten guineas? Why do you have ten guinea pigs? The way you read that, staring at it, I thought that's what it said. And I'm like, does this guy not understand money? I mean, he's only been gone 23 years. Or I'm sorry, 3 and 20 years. Your wish can be gratified at a less costly rate, he said, smiling. The night mail from the north, which changes horses at Dwalding, passes within five miles of this spot and will be due at a certain crossroad in about an hour and a quarter. If Jacob were to go with you across the moor and put you into the old coach road, you could find your way, I suppose, to where it joins the new one. Easily. Gladly. He smiled again, rang the bell, gave the old servant his directions, and taking a bottle of whiskey and a wine glass from the cupboard in which he kept his chemicals, said, The snow lies deep, and it will be difficult walking tonight on the moor. A glass of uskabah before you start? What's uskabah? I'm guessing it's a kind of whiskey because he called it a whiskey, whiskey, but uskabah. Whiskey. It's an Irish Scottish whiskey. Um Asquaba. Asquaba. Which translates to water of life. Aquavite. Yep. Asquaba before you start. I would have declined the spirit, but he pressed it on me, and I drank it. He it pressed went- it on him? He's poured it all over him. He's like, Yeah. yeah. Yep. Pour some Asquaba on me. In the name of love, pour some whiskey on me. <laughs> yeah, can't get enough. Oh, that sounds like a good good night. <laughs> I would have declined the spirit, but he pressed it on me, and I drank it. It went down my throat like liquid fire, and almost <laughs> took my breath away. It is strong, he said, <laughs> but it will help keep out the cold. And now, you have no moments to spare. Good night. <laughs> Don't worry, you'll be hallucinating by the time you reach yeah, the road. That, you know that shit's, like, laced with some, like, woo-woo juice. <laughs> I thanked him for his hospitality and would have shaken hands, but that he had turned away before I could finish my <laughs> sentence. In another minute, I had traversed the hall, Jacob had locked the outer door behind me, and we were out on the wide, white moor. 
That guy's weird, man. <laughs> Although the wind had fallen, it was still bitterly cold. Not a star glimmered on the black vault overhead. Not a sound save the rapid crunching of the snow beneath our feet disturbed the heavy stillness of the night. Jacob, not too well pleased with his mission, shambled <laughs> on before in sullen silence, his lantern in his hand and his shadow at his feet. I followed with my gun over my shoulder, as little inclined for conversation as himself. My thoughts were full of my late host. His voice yet rang in my ears, his eloquence yet held my imagination captive. I remember to this day with surprise how my overexcited brain retained whole sentences and parts of sentences, troops of brilliant images and fragments of splendid reasoning in the very words in which he had muttered them. Musing thus over what I had heard and striving to recall a lost link here and there, I strode on at the heels of my guide, absorbed and unobservant. Presently, at the end, as it seemed to me of only a few minutes, he came to a sudden halt and said, Yon's your road. Keep the stone fence on your right hand, and you can't fail of the way. This, then, is the old coach road? Aye, tis the old coach road. <laughs> and how far do I go before I reach the crossroads? Nigh upon three mile. Damn! I pulled out my purse, and he became more communicative. <laughs> the road's a fair road enough, said he, for foot passengers, but twas over steep and narrow for the northern traffic. You'll find where the parapet's broken away, close again the signpost. It's never been mended since the accident. The accident? What? Accident? <laughs> Thank you. Okay, um, what? <laughs> eh, the nightmare pitched right over into the valley below. Good fifty feet more. Just at the worst bit of road in the old country. Horrible. Were many lives lost? All. Four were found dead and the other two died next morning. How long is it since this happened? Just, uh, nine year. Near the signpost, you say? I will bear it in mind. Good night. Uh, creepy. Um, thanks for that creepy story. Um, that creepy ass story before you sent me out alone into the dark. Yeah, what an asshole. <laughs> Good night, sir, and thank ye. Jacob pocketed his half crown, made a faint pretense of touching his hat, and trudged back by the way he had come. <laughs> Have a nice trot on the haunted road. <laughs> I watched the light of his lantern till it quite disappeared, and then turned to pursue my way alone. This was no longer matter of the slightest difficulty, for despite the dead darkness overhead, the line of stone fence showed distinctly enough against the pale gleam of the snow. How silent it seemed now, with only my footsteps to listen to. How silent and how solitary. A strange, disagreeable sense of loneliness stole over me. 
I walked faster. I hummed a fragment of a tune. I cast up enormous sums in my head and accumulated them at compound interest. I did my best, in short, to forget the startling speculations to which I had but just been listening, and to some extent, I succeeded. Okay, okay, okay. So he's walking down the street he's singing songs. And saying five plus five doing, is ten. Yeah. Ten plus ten is twenty. Yeah. Seeing, he, he, he invented Schoolhouse Rock Live while he was walking. <laughs> <laughs> singing songs and doing sums. Yep. About all the fun things he'd heard about tonight to distract himself from the ghost story. I took out a $2,000 loan. <laughs> For a house that I was really hoping to own. Well, the APR was 17.5. Could I ever pay it back? Well, I was alive. <laughs> I don't remember that episode of Schoolhouse Rock, but, you know, I didn't, I didn't see them all, I guess. I don't know. He was talking about interest rates and singing a song. So that was my I liked it. My attempt. I liked it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven eight, eight, nine, nine ten, ten, eleven, twelve. Right. So I tried my best, in short, to forget the startling speculations to which I had just been listening, and to some extent I succeeded. Meanwhile, the night air seems to become colder and colder. And though I walked fast, I found it impossible to keep myself warm. My feet were like ice. I lost sensation in my hands and grasped my gun mechanically. You can't use a gun against a ghost, dude. <laughs> you can't kill a ghost with a gun. <laughs> I even breathed with difficulty, as though instead of traversing a quiet north country highway, I were scaling the uppermost heights of some gigantic alp. This last symptom became presently so distressing that I was forced to stop for a few minutes and lean against the stone fence. As I did so, I chanced to look back up the road, and there, to my infinite relief, I saw a distant point of light like the gleam of an approaching lantern. Uh, I think that whiskey's kicking in. I... <laughs> <laughs> I at first concluded that Jacob had retraced his steps and followed me, but even as the conjecture presented itself, a second light flashed into sight, a light evidently parallel with the first and approaching at the same rate of motion. It needed no second thought to show me that these must be the carriage lamps of some private vehicle, though it seemed strange that any private vehicle should take a road professedly disused and dangerous. There could be no doubt, however, of the fact, for the lamps grew larger and brighter every moment, and I even fancied I could already see the dark outline of the carriage between them. It was coming up very fast and quite noiselessly, the snow being nearly a foot deep under the wheels. And now the body of the vehicle became distinctly visible behind the lamps. It looked strangely lofty. A sudden suspicion flashed upon me. Was it possible that I had passed the crossroads in the dark without observing the signpost? And could this be the very coach which I had come to meet? 
Well, I mean, you were singing songs and not paying attention. Yeah, so. that's what you get for inventing schoolhouse rock and singing show tunes. While you're they drunk were on like the, the Hobbit's whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> no need to ask myself that question a second time, for here it came round the bend of the road, guard and driver, one outside passenger, and four streaming greys, all wrapped in a soft haze of light through which the lamps blazed out like a pair of fiery meteors. I jumped forward, waved my hat, and shouted. The mail came down at full speed and passed me. For a moment, I feared that I had not been seen or heard, but it was only for a moment. The coachman pulled up, the guard muffled to the eyes with capes and comforters and apparently sound asleep in the rumble, neither answered my hail nor made the slightest effort to dismount. The outside passenger did not even turn his head. I opened the door for myself and looked in. There were but three travelers inside, so I stepped in, shut the door, slipped into the vacant corner, and congratulated myself on my good fortune. Um, I seem to remember uh, there were six people that died in that accident. Yep. <laughs> just, just pointing that out. <laughs> the atmosphere of the coach seemed, if possible, colder than that of the outer air. Dude, how are you not putting this together? Come on, brah. You just literally got a lecture from a guy who had to remove himself from the world because he believes in ghosts. Um, then as you're walking down this deserted ass road, this guy goes, but and then there was an accident <laughs> and now you are in the ghost coach. <laughs> the atmosphere of the coach seemed, if possible, colder than that of the outer air and was pervaded by a singularly damp and disagreeable smell. Ew, ew, I looked ew. around at my fellow passengers. They were all three men and all silent. They did not seem to be asleep, but each leaned back in his corner of the vehicle as if absorbed in his own reflections. I attempted to open a conversation. How intensely cold it is tonight, I said, addressing my opposite neighbor. He shifted his head, looked at me, but made no reply. Oh, no. The winter, I added, seems to have begun in earnest. Although the corner in which he sat was so dim that I could distinguish none of his features very clearly, I saw that his eyes were still turned full upon me, and yet he answered never a word. Oh, God. At any time I should have felt, and perhaps expressed, some annoyance, but at the moment I felt too ill to do either. The icy coldness of the night air had struck a chill to my very marrow, and the strange smell inside the coach was affecting me with an intolerable nausea. Oh, God. I shivered from head to foot, and turning to my left-hand neighbor, asked if he had any objection to an open window. He neither spoke nor stirred. One of you smells like shit, man. I repeated the question somewhat more loudly, but with the same result. Then I lost patience and let the sash down. As I did so, the leather strap broke in my hand, and I observed that the glass was covered in a thick coat of mildew, the accumulation, apparently, of years. My attention being thus drawn to the condition of the coach, I examined it more narrowly, and saw by the uncertain light of the outer lamps 
that it was in the last stage of dilapidation. Every part of it was not only out of repair, but in a condition of decay. The sashes splintered at a touch. The leather fittings were crusted over with mold and literally rotting from the woodwork. The floor was almost breaking away beneath my feet. The whole machine, in short, was foul with damp and had evidently been dragged from some outhouse in which it had been moldering away for years to do another day or two of duty on the road. Of duty. Duty on the road. <laughs> this has been entirely too mature an episode. We need to squeeze a poop joke in there. I had to put a poop joke in, because this is really gross. <laughs> I turned to the third passenger, whom I had not yet addressed, and hazarded one more remark. This coach, I said, is in a deplorable condition. The regular mail, I suppose, is under repair. He moved his head slowly and looked me in the face without speaking a word. I shall never forget the look while I live. I turned cold at heart under it. I turn cold at heart even now when I recall it. His eyes glowed with a fiery, unnatural luster. His face was livid as the face of a corpse. Oh, God. His bloodless lips were drawn back as if in the agony of death and showed the gleaming teeth between. The words that I was about to utter died upon my lips, and a strange horror, a dreadful horror, came upon me. My sight had by this time become used to the gloom of the coach, and I could see with tolerable distinctness. I turned to my opposite neighbor. He, too, was looking at me with the same startling pallor in his face and the same stony glitter in his eyes. I passed my hand across my brow. I turned to the passenger on the seat beside my own and saw... Oh, heaven, how shall I describe what I saw? I saw that he was no living man, that none of them were living men like myself. A pale phosphorescent light, the light of putrefaction, played upon their awful faces, upon their hair, dank with the dews of the grave, upon their clothes, earth-stained and dropping to pieces, upon their hands, which were as the hands of corpses long buried. Only their eyes, their terrible eyes, were living, and those eyes were all turned menacingly upon me. Get the fuck out of that coach. They're gonna kill you. They're gonna, they're gonna crash, and they're gonna take you down with them. A shriek of terror, a wild, unintelligible cry for help and mercy burst from my lips as I flung myself against the door and strove in vain to open it. <gasps> in that single instant, brief and vivid as a landscape, beheld in a flash of summer lightning, I saw the moon shining down through a rift of stormy cloud, the ghastly signpost rearing its warning finger by the wayside, the broken parapet, the plunging <gasps> horses, the black gulf below. Then the coach reeled like a ship at sea. Then came a mighty crash, a sense of crushing pain, and then darkness. Oh my God. 
It seemed as if years had gone by when I awoke one morning from a deep sleep and found my wife watching by my bedside. <gasps> I will pass over the scene that ensued and give you in a half dozen words the tale she told me with tears of thanksgiving. <gasps> I had fallen over a precipice close against the junction of an old coach road and the new, and had only been saved from certain death by lighting upon a deep snowdrift that had accumulated at the foot of the rock beneath. In this snowdrift, I was discovered at daybreak by a couple of shepherds who carried me to the nearest shelter and brought a surgeon to my aid. The surgeon found me in a state of raving delirium with a broken arm and a compound fracture of the skull. The letters in my pocketbook showed my name and address. My wife was summoned to nurse me, and thanks to youth and a fine constitution, I came out of danger at last. The place of my fall, I need scarcely say, was precisely that at which a frightful accident had happened to the North Mail nine years before. Oh, my God. I never told my wife the fearful events which I have just related to you. I told the surgeon who attended me, but he treated the whole adventure as a mere dream born of the fever in my brain. We discussed the question over and over again until we found that we could discuss it with temper no longer, and then we dropped it. Others may form what conclusions they please. I know that 21 years ago, I was the fourth inside passenger in that phantom, phantom coach. coach. Oh my god, that's fucking terrifying. Oh my god, I wonder if other people died in it. If other they people like had gotten people in and up, gone they over pick the way. people up and like, ugh. So this story is clearly in the vein of... You know the the phantom hitchhiker, yeah. or oh, the uh, it's like, like there's the, you know every town has that one back street where well, it's like where the you phantoms, can like the, the the like where the, the ravine where the car went over yeah. and you can sometimes see it driving at night or like but like this was like in the like no. mid 1800s. This is just a predecessor of oh those. Oh my god, it's that's so creepy. See, I would have gone back to that house like when I'd recovered. I would have gone back to that house and told the guy this story. Unless that house doesn't exist. It's not really there. See, that's like, that's my other. Mm-hmm. Like, that's why he hasn't had a visitor in four years. Yeah. I don't know, but that was creepy and I liked it. It was a good one. <laughs> I liked it a it lot. A fun one. Um, did you like it? You at home? Did, did you? If you did, send us a message and uh, um, say... Schoolhouse Rock. <laughs> yes, of course. Schoolhouse Rock. <laughs> I, I feel like we 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 need to um that needs to become a like an actual like a on purpose thing. <laughs> well, like, it seems like we've we've got a secret code at the end of every episode now. Yeah, we do. It's like who's a real fan? Have you been collecting the code words all along? What if we like? Yeah, what if it was like, if you have all the code words, then you get a free something from us. We'll send you a secret decoder ring. Yeah, it's like uh, Little Orphan Annie back in like the a Christmas story times. I, I promise that the message will not be drink more Ovaltine. Drink more Ovaltine. 
It might be drink more whiskey or wine, but that's because we approve of that message. Or Uskabach. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cool. Awesome. So... Uh, thanks for listening. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm trying to bring the energy up as we. I feel like that was a very sort of broody, subdued. Well, it was, it was whole, dark um, because it was light nighttime and, it was, and nighttime, it was yeah. cold. Uh, so thanks for listening. Um, you know the drill at this point. Uh, you have your code word to message us. Um, share this with five friends. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Same campfire time, same campfire channel. Yeah. Until then, this has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. The moral of the story, don't take rides from strangers. Stranger danger. Stranger danger. <laughs> <laughs>